I'm Sarah, and together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today, we're answering your questions. It is Orca Awareness Month, and we are super excited to be answering some of the questions that you sent in about orcas. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. We are super, super excited, as we said, for Orca Awareness Month. It, you know, might be our favorite month of the year because we really like orcas. I don't know if you could tell that or not. (laughs) Spoilers. But orcas are pretty awesome. And we are really excited today to be digging deep into your questions about orcas. So, Lindsay, can you take it away with our first question from the not studio, from the online audience? We don't have a studio, even if we were. alone in our houses for the last hundred days we don't even have a studio it's so true (laughs) anyway uh from richard olson 230 asks is it true orcas are large dolphins and it is they are the biggest (laughs) by a lot question answered i'm going to bed (laughs) we're getting started with the tough hitters no in all honesty thank you richard olson 230 for your question it's a, it's a, it's i think we've mentioned it in some of our previous episodes that like when you learn that as a marine biology nerd when you learn that killer whales are the largest species of dolphin that becomes your go-to like did you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. So yep. they're the largest member of the dolphin family, which is the a family in the order of tooth whales, which all fall under a whole thing of whales and cetaceans and stuff. So they're killer whales or orcas or the killer of whales, but they're dolphins, but they're tooth whales, but they're whales, but they're cetaceans, but they're... <laughs> all right. Our next question comes to us from PNW Godzilla. I still love this screen name so much. All right. Question is... Even though worldwide there are just one species, Orchinus orca, is there any evidence of possible speciation or even subspecies, as some populations have been removed from others for some time? This is an excellent question, and I think, spoiler alert, this is going to be the longest answer to any of the questions that we have from you today. Because the answer to this question is complicated. I could sum it up by just saying yes and leave it at that to be perfectly honest because there is evidence of speciation and subspecies but to dig a little bit deeper into PNW Godzilla's question the truth is that like what the heck even is a species man is a really fair and complicated question to ask in the world. Uh, From an ecology standpoint, we often use the term ecotype to describe all of the 10 sort of the 10 identified ecotypes or different types of orca in the world. But even within those 10, for example, one of those 10 ecotypes is the resident killer whale. And we know that even just here along our coast where you find residents, there are Northern residents and Southern residents. And remember guys, when we found out about the Alaskan residents and we had never heard about them before (laughs) (laughs) and our minds were blown. So even within ecotypes, there are populations is what they're technically called. When we're talking about killer whales, there are populations within an ecotype that have not interbred with each other, have not mixed with each other for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So 
everything about answering this question comes down to what is your definition of a species? And the truth is that even that, even trying to identify what the heck is a species versus subspecies, ecotype, all that other stuff, it depends. There isn't really a great black or white answer. There's a lot of... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I didn't even mean to do that. (laughs) Amazing. Orcas are awesome. Um... There's a lot of different sort of species concepts out there which come up with various identification, categorization, definitions of what constitutes a species. There's the biological species concept, which we're probably most familiar with. We've even talked about it on the podcast before, which is a species is a species if two members of that species can mate and produce viable offspring and if they mate with another species their offspring will not be viable and therefore they are distinct species from each other but trying to identify what a species is based on what it's not is weird and at the end of the day everything about all of those terms and any other following terminology like ecotype or subspecies, which is really just two sides of the same coin, they're all human-made concepts. And everything out there that's alive, whether it's a plant or an animal or something else, is at its own stage of evolution. And we're just trying to make sense of the world. And humans like to classify things. And so we started classifying things as species. But none of the other things out there that we classify as species care that they're their own species. (laughs) So ultimately, it just comes down to humans making the decision about whether something is a species or a subspecies or an ecotype or whatever. So while digging into all of that uncertainty and and oddness, I guess, I did find out how in the marine mammal world new species are classified. And I thought this was interesting. So we're going to share a link to the Committee of Speciation or ta- the Committee on Taxonomy of the Society for Marine Mammalogy. Those are, that's a whole fun lot of words to <laughs> say. <laughs> but it's basically the nerdiest group of scientists said with much love that you could imagine getting together in a room every year to come to some kind of consensus on which marine mammals, and they look at all marine mammals, should be reclassified as separate species from each other. And in order to fall into like the talking points for that committee, someone out there who's doing research on a species needs to put forward a proposal that that species be broken down into subspecies. And they need to have obviously lots of peer-reviewed literature to go along with that process. And then the Committee on Taxonomy assesses it and makes a decision. And every year they release a new list of species. So what I find weirdest of all about this is I think you'd be hard pressed to find an orca researcher who isn't in their mind ready to admit that all of those ecotypes are in fact at least different subspecies. And some of them even would go so far as to say that like by now they're different species, but they all seem to have other things to worry about when it comes to putting their research dollars to work than trying to prove that point. And maybe that's something we can all learn from. Yeah. Because it 
doesn't matter to the orcas. Nope. <laughs> They're just going around eating the things that they eat. Yep. Uh, if you want to learn more about the eco- different ecotypes of killer whales, we talked all about that in a lot of detail in last year's Orca Awareness Month episode. So if you have no idea what you're talking about and you got distracted thinking about a bunch of nerds sitting around talking about species, <laughs> um, you can go back and listen. It was episode three and uh, it uh, lists all the different kinds because they're all over the world and they're very confusing because they have weird names and they sometimes they eat mammals and sometimes they eat turtles. And uh, <laughs> yeah. It's all weird. And I say that group of nerds sitting around a table with the biggest amount of love because oh, yeah, totally. as you two both know like there's really no place I'd rather be <laughs> oh, no. it would be amazing like, at that table <laughs> it would be so awesome <laughs> yeah uh, our next question comes to us from friend of the podcast and real life friend Liz uh, and she would like to know why are there different kinds of killer whales with different prey preferences in overlapping geographic areas and do they interbreed um, so let's answer the first question is that they do not interbreed in the wild. They barely even interact. Um, we're speaking specifically about, um, the, the most common example that we often talk about on the podcast is the local transient and, uh, resident killer whales or the bigs and resident killer whales off of the BC coast. So, the big or transient killer whales eat marine mammals and the residents eat fish, primarily salmon. Um, and um, even though, yeah, so there's like basically no interaction. Um, in captivity, they have bred, um, which is an interesting point that I'll get to in a moment. Um, but so it seems like a lot of the current distribution happened because of a redistribution during like a glacial maximum um 200,000 years ago so there was like a bottleneck event all these different populations kind of got like reshuffled around uh it's thought that the um that the biggest killer whales diverged sort of at least like 700,000 years ago um from the rest of the killer whales and then um which is so crazy so crazy and then sort of more recently about 200,000 years ago during this glacial event um ended up primarily in the north pacific um so they didn't both evolve in the same area but they've just ended up in the same area because there's lots it's a good place for to be a killer whale i guess for lots of different kinds of killer whales which is cool um the other thing is that um we've known for a long time that there's strong cultural and like learning that happens like passed down um uh between individuals in a population of killer whales and that seems to be especially prominent in um their feeding strategies um we talked in our last episode about uh humpback whales teaching each other different feeding methods and so it seems that this culture and the way that they communicate is a really important distinguishing characteristic between different populations of killer whales um so i think that sort of ties into um captivity in terms of if these killer whales are separated from that culture and they're in captivity then there's like less reason for them not to interbreed basically so um the other thing off our local is like the big killer whales don't interact at all with the resident killer whales not even to prey on them so they'll eat any other basically any other kind of marine mammal but they won't eat resident killer whales 
um, which is kind of cool. Like they overlap hugely in their geographic range, but they basically, it's almost like they don't interact at all. Yeah, they go out of their way to avoid each other, it seems. And although it's a lot harder for us to find information about the four Antarctic ecotypes, type A, well, actually five, because they're all the Southern Hemisphere and there's the two type Bs, it seems to be the same there. There's quite a lot of geographic overlap from what we know about, although they are less studied, less well studied. There's quite a lot of geographic overlap and no reports of ever seeing them at the same time, two different ecotypes. Do they overlap with prey types? They do, yeah. There's some prey overlap, and th- but there's also there's just so much that's not as well known about them. But one of them, at least one of them, is also marine mammal eating. And like the type A's eat minke whales primarily, although there's we'll get into that actually in one of the few, the questions coming up in today's episode that type A's be weird. Yeah. <laughs> the, well, the other <laughs> cool thing about studying this, and I don't know 100% if this is true for all populations of killer whales, but the ones that I know about are very matrilinear. So they basically um, stay with their mothers and like the, the way that we have understanding of who's related to whom in a group um, visually or like by studying is because of who they're with, but then we can also study mitochondrial DNA, which, because you get the mitochondria in your body from your mother's mitochondria, so then you can study, like, the whole matriline genetically as well as observe, which is kind of cool. And that's how they figured out the um, the 200,000 years ago, um, it based on, like, how much uh, mitochondrial DNA variation there is between different populations. Yeah. So cool. Mm-hmm. It's super cool. Going back to the Antarctica one, there's no evidence to say that they're not down there. I know that they're usually further north in the winter and in the southern hemisphere winter, but they could just be all having a giant party. Because it's too dark to study killer whales. <laughs> yes. This is why they are much less well known to us. They're just all down there, all five ecotypes, and they're like, hee 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 hee, nobody knows. Confusing the scientists. <laughs> Amazing. Now I want someone to, please, actually, this is a true call to action for you listeners. Please fan art that. Somebody, <laughs> somebody please draw us all, like, a representative of each of the five ecotypes of the Southern Hemisphere killer whales just having a, like, hee hee party i would love that so much i will put it up in my office which is now my basement (laughs) (laughs) amazing carries a little bit less weight but it's still the thought that counts it's true um okay next question from uh, another friend of the pod close uh close friend uh my sister amanda (laughs) who sometimes gets forced into asking questions late at night. Um, She asks, how many teeth do killer whales have? Killer whales have very large teeth, which are conical and interlocking, um, which kind of makes sense when you think about it. Don't say that, because I know what a killer whale jaw looks like, so I'm just rambling anyway. Um, (laughs) So, tooth whales... Oh, jeez. So, tooth whales have only one set of teeth. They're not replaced once they're lost, like something like a shark. Um, the number of teeth that tooth whales have varies among individuals even, and they, so they're usually 10 to 14 teeth on each side of the jaw. So that's 40 to 56 teeth total, and the teeth can be up to four inches long, which is scary. Yes. Yes. 
When but remember that at least one inch of that is the root, so it's mm. below the Okay, gut. well that works. That definitely makes me feel better if I'm up close to a killer whale tooth. <laughs> uh, not really at all. Um, our next question comes from Drake Bay Birder, and the question is, do you know anything about the groups that move in Costa Rica's waters? And the top thing here says, once they ate a tiger shark, which <laughs> is amazing. And we will... <laughs> Um, should we share this link or do you think that they're dumb too dumb to share no it's it's a really incredible video and so though i don't think the people who filmed it are the smartest cookies in the box the video in this case outweighs my distaste for the not not whale-wise behavior of the videoers. Um, so killer whales are rare to see in Costa Rica. They're probably maybe type A's, which we are Antarctic killer whales, uh, an ecotype. Uh, type A's do seem to have the biggest range of the Southern Hemisphere uh, killer whales. Uh, if we thought the Northern Hemisphere ecotypes were confusing, like uh, like we just talked about, residents, Southern residents, Northern residents, Alaskan residents... Uh, Alaskan bigs, BC bigs, California bigs, uh, offshores, blah, blah, blah. That's just the north, I mean, the west coast. Um, the southern hemisphere or ecotypes are on a pretty high, ridiculous level as well. So type A killer whales are the largest. They're migratory. They follow minke whales uh, and are said to eat primarily minke whales and sometimes elephant seals, which is also very intense. Elephant seals are big. And I feel it could also do a hell of a lot more damage than a minky whale. Sorry, minkies, but yeah, elephant minky seals are, just, are like there. Yeah, yeah. So New Zealand killer whales, which are probably also type A's, but again, it's really hard to figure out. Um, they eat rays and uh, smaller sharks, than, and fish, and turtles, and cetaceans, which is basically everything, um, <laughs> whatever they can catch. <laughs> and we've also seen. Killer whales, which are probably New Zealand, probably type A killer whale ecotypes in the Galapagos, hunting turtles. So, yeah, that's, yeah. like, we don't know. This is why and, this is why you gotta do the DNA. Yeah. yeah. And just to clarify, we do know that Costa Rica is not in the Southern Hemisphere. But the yes. type A's have a huge range that yes. leaves the Southern Hemisphere. Yes, like the Galapagos. <laughs> yeah. And um, the type A's, and this is what, again, kind of, like, goes to... We know so much more and we really have to stress and remember that because I get really frustrated anytime mm. we get a question about a non-bigs or or resident yeah, orca. Resident. I'm like, why isn't there more information? <laughs> why is this so hard for me to find? And we're just, we're spoiled. Yeah, we really With the are. fact that the residents and the bigs here in the Pacific Northwest are the best studied marine mammal period the end yeah so yeah, it's really oh. <laughs> it's really hard when i go to look for things like i went to go find a photo of a type a on google and it took me like forever and I'm just like oh my god i have 17 photos of every single southern resident on my desktop not on my desktop on my in my folders i'm an organized person um <laughs> But still, and that that's just the way that it is. And it's hard. Like, yeah, we live here, so we get a lot of photos and stories from the people who live here who are our friends. But it's just, like, it's intense. Like, 
they're just starting to catalog the, the Western Australian killer whales. And but cataloging them and photo IDing them doesn't mean that they know where they're going when no. they're not there or who they belong to. They eat all sorts of stuff. They eat mola molas, but also squids and also beaked whales. So Yeah. And they are also probably type A's from everything that we know about all five of the southern hemisphere ecotypes. Because another example of a type A, and this is just to show like type A's be crazy is that it's thought to be the type A's probably another population just like the northern residents southern residents Alaskan residents that are the group in Argentina that go up onto the sea lion pupping beaches and beach themselves like surf onto the sand to grab sea lion pups and then go back in the water which is so cool and I want to see so badly. I know, it's so amazing and our friend did try, she did go to the beach but it's one of those things where you just have to wait like you thought whale watching was difficult in a crapshoot <laughs> like um, but this video of the orca eating the sea turtle in the Galapagos is also really amazing, I've seen it before and it's so weird and it's so cool and yeah, killer whales are crazy um, but crazy awesome, so you know and they can eat anything, really, yeah, like really, true. like really, a sea really, turtle, like anything. Really, why would you even like a gooey caramel center? Is that's what we're going for now? <laughs> why don't you just eat a seal? They're so you much easier, and they're just all fat, deliciousness. <laughs> true. So the fact that killer whales can eat anything actually ties us very nicely into our next question, which comes to us from James. Hi, James. His question is, can I get in the water with one? And also, are there resident pods in Southern California? Two excellent questions. So let's talk about getting into the water with one first. This is a probably a pretty controversial question, to be perfectly honest. And I think that you would get very different answers to this question depending on who you asked. We are going to do our not, best yeah, to Not be... between the three of us. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> we probably would all give you the same answer. But depending on who you asked in the community, in the, in the cetacean-loving community, you get different answers. So we're going to do our best to be non-biased here and just kind of present the facts. It is illegal to get into the water as a swimmer or a snorkeler or a scuba diver, but to like get into the water yourself as a human being with a cetacean in North America. We obviously know the rules in Canada because we're all Canadian and in North America better than anywhere else, but it is illegal and you can get a, a heavy fine for jumping off your boat to go swim with harbor porpoises or with killer whales. So definitely do not do it in North America. In New Zealand, researchers have gotten special permission to, and I think it's actually just two researchers, like one researcher and her assistant, I think, in New Zealand have gotten special permissions to do that because it is also illegal in lots of other parts of the world. I just don't know off the top of my head exactly where it's legal and not or where it's like frowned upon versus actually finable. Um, but in New Zealand, it is illegal as well. However, this researcher uh, and some of their assistants have gotten permission and the appropriate permits to be able to do that. The only place in the world currently that has 
both the legal ability to get into the water with a killer whale as well as kind of like the regular occurrence enough of that being a possibility that they've been able to turn it into a bit of a tourist opportunity is Norway and Norway be cold (laughs) (laughs) yes so we do have a good friend of the website, a friend of Whale Tales, uh, Ashley, who's actually shared some of her stories on our podcast before and has definitely shared many, many, many of her stories on in our library on Whale Tales. But she has actually been to Norway twice now and has swam with orcas there. And we have some of her stories on our website, right? Yeah. Um, And we have some of her stories on our website, so you can read about it. But I think for the average person, if you don't live in Norway and you don't have the ability or feel comfortable doing that, I would probably avoid it. It's it's probably not the safest thing you can choose to do. Um, The other part of James... Arambula's question is, are there resident pods in Southern California? And this was a really interesting question as well, because it ties into, as we've kind of been talking about, the complexities around even what we think of as pretty, like, well-identified, well, and truly, yeah, well-identified and easily distinguishable populations like the bigs and the residents. So, California is home to a number of different types of killer whales, short version. It is the furthest south that the southern residents, who are such frequent visitors along our coast here in BC, it's their furthest south range that they'll go. K and L pods in particular uh, tend to spend a lot of the winter months in Monterey Bay, Bigs also are frequently spotted in California, and so far over 145 have been identified as being sort of local, we can say, to California in the Bigs population. But it's really the offshores who actually spend a lot of time in California. And there used to be a group that was so commonly seen, a group of offshores that was so commonly seen in Californian waters that they were called the LA pod for Los Angeles because they were actually seen off the coast of LA, which would just be so cool. So, so, so cool. Unfortunately, um, they haven't been seen since 1997, at least not in California from what we could tell. So hopefully they are okay. There were 14 members in the LA pod. And this is a pod that's also pretty famous because this is the pod that was seen attacking and killing a great white shark and I don't have the video in the show notes but we will put a link to that in the show notes because I'm sure we can find it and it's pretty awesome. We will also include in the show notes some links to our fellow researchers in California including the California Killer Whale Project and the Monterey Bay Whale Watch Research who are working to try and catalog these orcas down in California who some of whom may also find their way up along the rest of the Pacific Northwest and some might just hang out there because who doesn't love California? All right, let's move on to our next question because I am so excited about this particular person's handle. Coming to us from Gizmo's family. Uh, My husband would also be really excited about this because he has a thing about gremlins. (laughs) Gizmo's family asks, 
how threatening are they to humans in the wild? If I find myself in the water with one, how fast do I need to get out? LOL. Which is an excellent question. So as we've talked about, in general, I think I speak for all three of us, we don't think it's a great idea to get in the water with an orca. In terms of danger, though, and threat to humans, this is a really, really hard question to answer. Because if you were to search this question, you're actually going to come up with basically the same quote, no matter what article article you find on this. There has never been a documented case of an orca in the ocean killing a human. And that's true. However, that is only a part of the story. There have been some, some people would call them attacks. Some people would call them rough playing situations in both New Zealand and Norway, where killer whales have injured or scared or had the potential for a situation where they were interacting with a human in the water to turn into a, a a very dangerous very uh a very dangerous situation very quickly it's probably not a coincidence that that has happened in the two places where people are more frequently getting in the water with killer whales they're very very large animals who are quite curious and have the ability ability to take down a blue whale whether or not they do because that comes down to ecotypes again and culture physiologically every killer whale has the physical ability to take down a blue whale and we are super small compared to a blue whale so though there has it is true that there has never been a documented case of a killer whale in the ocean killing a human i think there's a deeper thing to understand there where in most places in the world, it's illegal to get in the water with one in most places in the world where you frequently find yourself swimming in the ocean. Killer whales are also less likely to be seen in those areas. So yes, technically speaking, like in the Bahamas and in Florida and like all the places where we would like go swimming in the ocean out deep in the nice, clear, beautiful tropical waters, Killer whales can be found there, but they're not frequent visitors in those areas. So the ratio of people being in the water and having the opportunity to interact with these animals is so much lower than sharks, for example. So when we talk about shark attacks on humans, that's still a super, super low number. And the ratio of people being in the water and having the opportunity to be attacked by a shark is significantly higher. With killer whales... We're just not in the water with them very often. So I think it's great. I'm very, very happy that a killer whale has never killed a human in the ocean. Do I think there's the potential for danger in that situation? Yes, I do. And I think it's something that needs to be treated very cautiously. So to answer your specific question, Gizmo's family, about like if you found yourself in the water with them, how fast do you need to get out? I have found myself in the water about 600 meters from orcas. It was actually my very first ever scuba diving experience in the ocean. My first ever out of the like community pool dive. The boat alarm went off. And this is a story that's on, on Whale Tales. So you can read it. 
the boat alarm went off, we surfaced, and there were orcas about 600 meters away, and we all got out in the water hella fast, and those animals were very, very far away. So take that as you like it. We'll put it that way. (laughs) And I know this isn't Shark Week, but I'd just like to say that, except for this year probably, uh, more people are... Um, bitten by humans in New York than they are by sharks. (laughs) True. I definitely don't think that sharks are out there like waiting. No, we love sharks. All of us have been in the water with many different species of sharks, all three of us. Um, So yes, no, this was not a let's, let's hate on sharks moment. Definitely not. Thank you, Lindsay. (laughs) You're welcome. I just, any, any excuse to share that's, that stat uh i'll share it every day if i can yeah i think you're probably right though that may be less true may go this down this year, year. yeah <laughs> okay our next question comes from liam richardson and this person would like to know for orca month i was wondering what the most common causes of dorsal fin co- dorsal fin collapse in orcas are um, so in general, this is, uh, something that happens as orcas age and their health, um, is less. So the main thing to keep in mind is that male orcas in particular have six foot tall dorsal fins up to, and there's no bones in there. It's just cartilage. It's like your ear being six feet long. I mean, it's a little thicker than your ear, but <laughs> in terms of structure, <laughs> Now I'm just picturing my ear being as long as my body, and that's a not okay picture. No, it's not great. But you can see why it would um, be prone to collapse and etc. Especially um, cartilage as you age. Uh, If you have arthritis or bad knees, uh, cartilage uh, deteriorates as you age. Um, So, yeah, it's basically that, and it's almost exclusively happens in male orcas. um, And well, especially if you think about what a dorsal fin is for, not just on an orca, but on any animal, including fish with a dorsal fin, it's a rudder just on the top of their body instead of the bottom of a boat. And an animal that's traveling as fast as an orca, for example, you know, over 40 kilometers an hour, if they didn't have that dorsal fin, they would start to spin so that's a lot of pressure constantly keeping that dorsal fin erect. Yes. Yeah, I've definitely seen videos of atta- attacks um, where you can see the dorsal fin, like, wagging around. And it's it's kind of, like, disarming because you're so used to, like, the majestic dorsal fin breaking the water. And then yeah. you see it wiggling around and you're like, oh. oh. Yeah, so it's, it's not as, like, <laughs> stiff and sturdy as you might expect. Yeah, so it's a pretty rare thing to see, but it, it really has to do with the fact that it's made of cartilage and it's six feet tall. And orcas can live for many, many decades. So that's, and it's under a lot of stress and pressure as they are doing their orca things. Okay. <laughs> I like it. Um, our last question comes from Leanna Catherine. We'll go with that. Um, and this is a great question. And we decided we'd wrap up the podcast uh, with this one. I have a question for the podcast. Currently, as a college student, I'd like to somehow work with these animals to ensure their conservation and a place in the wild in the future. What are some ways or careers to do that? Oh, I love your question. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, Big round of applause for the <laughs> Go you. Um so the show notes literally say offer congrats best fishes and ideas (laughs) so yes 
congrats, best fishes and ideas. Um, <laughs> so you'll notice if you listen to our anniversary episode, which was two 13. episode thirteen, um, we all talked about our sort of various different routes into working with. Uh, in marine biology and with marine mammals so if you haven't listened to that one I would suggest checking that out because that's sort of our individual story Um, but I think my biggest idea would be to like talk to people who are doing the work that you want to do and that doesn't necessarily mean researchers it could be educators I mean obviously you're talking to us so thanks Um, (laughs) but it also it could be um, people working in museums or teaching about them it could be people uh we know a lot of people here who like are technically uh orca researchers but mostly they're researching their food web and their ecosystem and figuring out what they eat and what's happening to what they eat um and i think that's a really great way into stuff like we have seen a talk all about like where who else eats salmon and that that talk ended with herons yes yeah yeah Like in our area, herons are eating a ridiculous amount of juvenile salmon. Um, So yeah, I think getting into like the full ecosystem, I think, is a huge part of things, especially if you want to figure out how they have a place in the wild going forward and understanding their conservation, Um, both figuring out how you can talk to people and how you can talk about and understand the world around them. Yeah, I think uh, along with that, I would just say volunteering. I think I talked about this in episode 13 um, oh, yeah. is a research assistant or volunteering for anybody even if you're just doing uh entering sightings data or something not only does it get your name in there uh with people who can potentially help you out even if they're if they can't give you a job they can give you a reference or they can tell you about something that's happening mm-hmm. um but it also gives you a great idea it gives you a great background knowledge in a lot of different things but it also gives you a really good idea of what a day-to-day is like. So before you end up taking eight years of school and then try and get a job and you're like, oh no, what have I done? Um, that is really important. So like, if you have the opportunity, especially not this summer, to be a research assistant in the field, that is a really, really great thing to do. Also take yeah. field classes yeah. um, as well, just to get out in the field and like literally get your hands dirty, literally get your rubber boots filled with ocean water. Um, <laughs> um, find out if you're seasick. All of those kinds of things. Yeah, really that was the other thing I was going to say was like learn how to drive boats and like get out there yeah. and like not you know because that can also be a great route into getting actual paid work as a researcher is being somebody who has skills in terms of um, flying drones or driving boats or all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the only thing I would add, and it's going to seem out of left field, but give me a chance to explain, is, Leanna, Catherine, you've also said you're a college student. If you have the opportunity to take business classes, do it. Because most researchers struggle with finding funding. And most nonprofits struggle with finding funding. And a lot of nonprofits fund researchers. And so now you have researchers struggling to find funding and the nonprofit that's employing them struggling to find funding. So having the wherewithal and the skills to know how to find money and how to manage that money and how to run the financial side of an NGO is something we, I I don't have that skill, but it's something we don't talk a lot about on the podcast, but is becoming an increasingly real problem for all research, not even just 
orca research, as is the focus of this episode of the podcast, or cetacean research, the focus of what we do, money is very hard to come by. So put some of your extra credits into looking at fundraising and and the business side of research, because I think that would really benefit you in the long run, which will benefit orcas. Ooh, yeah. I have another one too that's like other classes that you could might be helpful. Um, and this is going to come from my computer science background. Um, taking programming courses and also GIS and imaging courses, like being able somebody who can do process figure out how to process large amounts of data. So things like um, GIS technologies, um, image like uh, computer processing of images and um, statistical programs. I think I don't use it a lot, but probably R is one that I know that is commonly used in the scientific community. Our friend who's a postdoc, that's the language that she works in. Um, like understanding how to use SQL or um, BigQuery like figuring out how to work with large amounts of data, not just in a statistics way, but actually um, in a like coding way uh, would probably serve you well and might lead to a different way to get into conservation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other big question, a big uh, tip I would say is invest, find yourself a really good raincoat. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere orcas live is where it rains. <laughs> yep. You are going to be very wet. Yes. Yeah. The end. <laughs> Good raincoat. Yep. yep. Good call. <laughs> it's so true. It's funny, but it's very yeah. true. You think you're making fun of people wearing long underwear? That will be you. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. We wish you the best Indeed. of luck. And let Dan us know Catherine. how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Leanna Catherine's question and some of our responses there actually lead us really well into our call to action for this episode, which we've touched on a lot because the answers to these questions, and this was the same the last time we had a mailbag episode, seemingly simple questions, questions that we feel for land animals, for terrestrial animals, are so easy to know the answers to when it comes to cetaceans, when it comes to anything that lives in the ocean, become so complicated and there's so 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 much that we don't understand or don't know how to study and don't know how to find out about orcas that we our call to action is just to keep asking the questions ask questions listen to the answers you get really truly listen and learn about them keep keep putting your money where your mouth is too and if this is a, if this is something that matters to you then fund research and keep asking those researchers the questions that you want to know because that's how we're gonna make the world a better place asking listening and learning so i think unless you two have anything to add on that that we've reached the end of our mailbag episode. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Hooray, orcas! <laughs> uh, we would really, really love to hear your thoughts on this episode, or any episode, so please visit our website, whale-tales.org, and find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line. You can also tweet at us directly. I am at FHG07. Sarah is Sarah K. Given, no H, because H's are ew. Ew. And Nicole is Nick F. Can, C-A-N-N. 
You can also head to our website to subscribe to our podcast, check out our merchandise, and learn about supporting us and becoming a patron. And you can read over 800 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. 400 of those are killer whale stories. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Uh, We have a star on the website, and it is an obvious one. (laughs) Plus, of course, if you've seen a cetacean in the wild, including a non-killer whale cetacean. We would love to add your story to our library. Click the share link on our site. Contact us on social media at whale dot No, sorry, not whale dash. Contact us on social media at whaletales.org or email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible encounter. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. And a special thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon. You can check that out at patreon.com slash whaletales. We will be back on the last Wednesday of this month with our next episode. Can you guess what it's on? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody. And as always, have a whaley great day.